And and we know that the process of getting Senate approval of judicial nominees has become increasingly slow. And so you have a compounded problem here. You have a slow Senate and and a slow White House. And I think both of those factors uh, contribute to the fact that Obama is is on pace to put a pretty low number of judges on the bench for his first term. This is Lawyer to Lawyer, the award-winning legal podcast with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. West Coast meets East Coast, and yes, they are attorneys, bringing you the latest legal news and observations every week with the leading experts in the legal profession. Produced right here on the Legal Talk Network. Hello and welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. I'm Craig Williams coming to you from Southern California. And I'm Bob Ambrogi coming to you from Rockport, Massachusetts, just a little ways outside of Boston, uh, where I write a blog called Law Sites and also a blog called Media Law. I have a blog called May It Please the Court, and we'd like to take this time to thank our sponsors, Clio, a web-based practice management software program for lawyers at goclio.com, AppRiver, email and web security experts. You can find out more about AppRiver at appriver.com, and PC Law by LexisNexis. For a free trial, go to pclaw.com slash radio. Well, Craig, we're getting uh, perilously close to November 6th when uh, people across the states will be casting their vote for president. Whatever the outcome, uh, it will most certainly influence our justice system. Uh, rec- just recently, there was a report uh, on showing how President Obama had significantly raised uh, the number of women on the federal bench, and he recently uh, appointed uh, one of the first, if not the first, openly gay federal judges. Well, and if Romney is elected, what impact will he have on the judiciary? I mean, certainly we won't be watching campaign news any longer, thankfully. And uh, we're going to be thinking about potential Supreme Court vacancies. So today on Lawyer to Lawyer, we're going to discuss the potential impact of the presidential race on the judiciary. And joining us first to uh, do that today is uh, uh, is Kenneth L. Manning. Uh, Kenneth L. Manning uh, uh, is a professor of political science at the University of Massachusetts at Dartmouth. His research focuses on American politics broadly with a particular emphasis upon judicial politics. He is co-author of the books Judicial Process in America, The Federal Courts, and The State Courts, all published by CQ Press. He's co-investigator of a 103,000-plus case database on federal district court decisions And his most recent publication conducted a a statistical analysis of the decision-making behavior of federal judges appointed by President Obama. So uh, welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer, Kenneth Manning. Good to be with you. And Bob, our next guest is Professor Carl Tobias from the University of Richmond School of Law. Carl holds the law school's prestigious Williams Chair, not related, and writes in a number of areas with a particular emphasis on federal judicial selection. A prolific scholar, Professor Tobias is the author of over 120 law articles and the author or co-author of more than 80 essays, commentaries, and shorter works in law reviews. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer, Carl. My pleasure. Well, Carl, let's start with you, and maybe you can give us a bit of history so that we can kind of get our little bit oriented here, and maybe just a short history of the last four years of what you think President Obama's influence on the judiciary has been. Well, I, I may want to defer to my colleague on uh, impact in terms of court decisions and how 
his appointees have fared, uh, but I might be able to help on uh, the process of selection and what's happened there. And what's most striking, I think, is the uh, small number of people who have been confirmed for the bench, uh, probably going to be uh, much smaller than both President uh, Clinton and President Bush in their first terms. Um, and that's substantially attributable to um, inability of the Senate uh, to confirm those nominees. And there are a number of Senate traditions that uh, the GOP has not seen fit to follow, uh, traditions that were followed as recently as the George W. Bush administration. Um, so that's the less positive uh, look at selection. Um, in terms of uh, certain appellate courts, uh, the impact has been striking. For example, uh, in the Fourth Circuit, where I teach, uh, the Obama administration has appointed six new judges on a 15-judge court, and for the first time ever, it is full with its 15-judge complement. And another example is the, the Ninth Circuit, which has one vacancy out of 29, and I can't even remember the last time there were so few vacancies on that court on the West Coast. And so there are a number of bright spots. Diversity is another one uh, where the president has smashed all prior records in terms of ethnicity, uh, gender, and uh, sexual orientation of his nominees and appointees. Well, we want to we want to talk more about uh, some of the, the gridlock that you've alluded to and the impact it's had on the uh, on the bench. But let's let's bring Ken Kenneth Manning into the conversation and and let me just put put the same question to you. I mean, what's what's your kind of assessment uh, of these first four years uh, of the Obama administration and and the impact he's had uh, uh, in. Uh, filling vacancies and, and what that's looked like? Well, I would agree with Carl that there's no question that uh, obstruction by Republicans in the Senate has been um, been a cause of the low numbers of judges that Obama has put on the bench. But there's another factor here, too, that uh, has not gotten as much attention, and that's the fact that the administration has been shockingly slow in putting names forward. And in a number of instances, positions have sat vacant quite a while before the Senate even has a name to mull over. And and we know that the process of getting Senate approval of judicial nominees has become increasingly slow. And so you have a compounded problem here. You have a slow Senate and, and a slow White House. And I think both of those factors uh, contribute to the fact that Obama is is on pace to put a pretty low number of judges on the bench for his first term. Um, now, you know, Democrats might come back and say, well, the reason he's slow is because there's so much obstructionism in the Senate, and he's got to vet his nominees especially carefully. Um, and, and there may be some truth to that, but it is very clear that um, increasingly, well, I should say, it is increasingly clear that the the pace at which judicial nominees go before the Senate is not something that the White House is terribly concerned upon, uh, concerned about. And, and overall, the record seems to indicate that judicial nominations is not something that's really been a high priority for this White House. 
Well, but what about the situation? We have the situation just the, the news just this week out of Connecticut where uh, federal the chief judge of the district court there has put out a call to federal judges in other states to to come and help the backlog while there's a a, a nominee uh, who's been who's been nominated who's, who's just kind of sitting there uh, without action uh, on, on his nomination to help fill a vacancy and help ease some of that backlog there. I mean, uh, it, you know, I hear what you're saying about uh, President Obama, but it seems like. Uh, uh, that uh, that the process uh, uh, and the gridlock is is uh, really what's what's causing the major obstruction here. No, I think that's true for the most part. But uh, you know, if you're going to assign blame here, I think that at the end of the day, the primary cause is the Senate delay. But a substantial contributing factor is the slowness by which the administration is, is putting names for Right now, there's 14 vacancies on the Court of Appeals. There's only seven nominees. Um, if you look at what's going on at the district court uh, level, there's less than 50% uh, nominee to vacancy ratio. Um, so, you know, this it's not like there's, you know, uh, this, this, this floodgate of nominees that, that are being blocked by the Senate. There's no question the Senate is intransigent, but the White House is also part of the problem here in getting names forward. Apparently there have been 17 different uh, nominees who have not been nominated because of the Thurman rule. Can you explain that to us? The, the Thurman rule is, yes. you know, it's, it's, it's kind of somewhat vague, nebulous rule that effectively says the Senate is not going to move to uh, to confirm lifetime nominees, i.e. judges, uh, in the waning months of a presidential term. The, the presumption is, of course, in the last days of the, uh, of the term of the president, um, uh, who knows what could happen, and so it might be best to, to leave that up to the new president. And, and what it is is simply is another tactic to delay and obstruct uh, the president from, from filling vacancies on the bench. Carl, I know you started to say something there. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I, I agree with Ken to a point. I think Obama was slow in nominating 2009. Um, after that, I think it's not a very fair criticism. And I think there's been a real uh, lack of uh, agreement on the part of the GOP leadership, um, which led to the 17 nominees uh, left on the floor, actually more like 20 and at the lower court level when they recessed. But that's uh, a larger number was there when they recessed for the August recess. And the most striking part is that um, the GOP really has not honored the tradition of packaging together uh, district court uh, consensus, non-controversial nominees as the Senate recesses throughout the Obama administration. That's been a real problem. I agree with Ken. The president could put much more pressure on the Senate to confirm if there were nominees for all the vacancies. But as Senator Hatch has said, uh, just because you don't have nominees for seats X, Y, and Z doesn't mean you shouldn't vote on the nominees who've been sent by the uh, Judiciary Committee and are on the floor for months uh, for seats A, B, and C. So, Carl, what happens uh, come November sixth? Uh, what what is the outcome? What impact is the outcome of this election likely to have on uh, these uh, judicial vacancies? 
Well, I think you have to differentiate between the lower courts and the Supreme Court, um, Supreme Court nominations. Or let's talk about lower courts first. I mean, that's where okay. the real crisis is. Yeah. Um, well, there are seventy-six or so vacancies, um, most at the district level, and uh, it, a lot rides on the election. I think if President Obama is uh, reelected, uh, there'll be a lame duck session. Um, and it may be that a number of these uh, nominees on the floor will be confirmed by the Senate, uh, partly depending on the Senate's composition um, in 2013 after the elections. Um, and so I think if Romney wins, I think very few of the people on the floor would be confirmed, though some may be because they have strong Republican backing. Senator Toomey from Pennsylvania argued yesterday in a letter that his two uh, nominees should be confirmed, you know, as soon as possible. And there are others uh, like that, uh, Bacharach for the Tenth Circuit. So it's possible, um, even if Romney's elected, that a few people would be confirmed in the lame duck. What type of what type of uh, judiciary would you expect to see under Romney? I, I don't know. I mean, he has parroted some of the typical views of. Uh, traditional Republicans, but I don't think he said much about it. Uh, there's been some uh, analysis, and maybe Ken is familiar with this, looking at the appointments in Massachusetts. And I think Romney has defended that record, saying that you know it was an overwhelmingly Democratic state, and that he appointed what he would call um, strict constructionist or a number of uh, prosecutors and people he felt were would be more conservative on the bench. But um, I don't think he did much by way of reforming the system, even though he promised to do that. Um, so I, that's, the, I think, one guide we have, and we'll just have to see. He really hasn't said much about it. Yeah, d- judicial nominations have really not been an issue in this election. Um, I, I think... You have to consider, of course, the tradition of senatorial courtesy when it comes to lower court nominations. Um, I suspect that a President Romney would appoint very conservative Republican jurists to his lower court uh, vacancies uh, that would be very comparable to the judges appointed by George W. Bush, by Ronald Reagan, and George Bush Sr. before him. So um, I, I suspect that these would be, you know, very conservative uh, Republicans that you would, that, you know, distinguished lawyers at the state level who are well-known among uh, party activists, uh, politically well-connected, and and those folks are going to be overwhelmingly conservative. So uh, a Romney victory, I think, very clearly steers the judiciary toward the right. We have 77 vacancies in the appellate courts. Is that considered to be a a crisis of any type, or is it just a, this is a normal every day we have 77 vacancies? I think it's It's very much on the high end. I think the most uh, striking statistic is from August 2009, uh, when the vacancies first reached 90, they have stayed relatively close to that um, since that period. So it's a three-year period. And that just exacts a toll um, on the districts, especially that are down um, some substantial percentage of their judges. I mean, there are a number of emergencies. Um, I think 10 of those on the floor right now are for emergencies where there are enormous caseloads or lengthy vacancies. And they just, um, 
mean that justice delayed is justice denied for litigants, for lawyers, and also for judges. Yeah, that's right. Um, I, I think that if you look at compared to recent history, the number of 70-odd of is not out of line, but it's very clear that in a broader historical perspective, the number is high. And it you know can vary significantly. The impact, I should say, of that can vary significantly from from court to court. In some places, there's more judges sitting than others. And in places where you may have two or three judges uh, authorized by Congress and one of them is vacant, the workload on the other jurists is, is just extraordinary. So uh, th- there's no question that having vacancies is, is putting pressure on federal judges. And is the impact of this most most be being felt on 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 the civil docket? I mean, there is a, a duty on the federal judges to move the criminal cases, uh, uh, and uh, everybody has a, a, a right to uh, a speedy trial in, in criminal matters. I'm not sure "speedy" is the right word in the circumstances, but uh, so is that where the impact uh, falls? Is on the civil docket? I think I think across it, it falls on all. Across the docket, I don't think you can say it just hits the civil side versus the criminal side. Um, there was a big piece in the Wall Street Journal um, about the increased pressures on um, on uh, plea bargaining, and and you know there's there's going to be uh, you know I, I should say logic would suggest that there's going to be greater numbers of plea bargains when you've got judges fewer judges having to move more cases. So uh, I, I think the, the, there's ripple effects throughout the judiciary here. What type of what? How does it affect collegiality among the the judges with having these vacancies and having to to deal with these extra caseloads that result from the the vacancies? Do they do they mind it? Or are they complaining about it? Or do they just sit back and do their job? Well, I think actually um, they soldier on. Um, there are many examples. Judge Lippez, uh in the First Circuit. Um, was scheduled to take senior status last summer, and he's continued to uh, take a full caseload. And I think that tends to happen around the country. Um, but you know, the whole system is set up to allow judges to take senior status and encourage that. Um, and they do out of the you know goodness of their heart and their uh, unwillingness to dump the cases on their colleagues. Uh, so that you hear judges staying on two or three, four years after they've taken senior status and are entitled to a half caseload, uh, carrying a full load. And uh, that, you know, that just wears down people. And the Eastern District of California is probably the worst example where all the, the judges for, I think, a decade have carried double the average caseload around the country. And uh, at some point, that just is, is uh, difficult for the judges and for the system. Certainly difficult on them, but you know they're not to blame ultimately. So I don't think it impacts collegiality among the jurists. Um, uh, you know that they just look to Washington as uh, the source of the problem. That they, they can't point fingers at their colleague across the hall. All right. Well, it's time for us to take a short break. We will have much more when Lawyer to Lawyer returns right after this. Hi, my name is Kay Kenny from Legal Talk Network, and I'm joined by Jack Newton, president of Clio. Jack takes a look at the process of moving to the cloud. Now, how long does it take to move to the cloud, and is it a difficult process? No, I, with most cloud computing providers, moving uh, your data into the cloud is something that takes 
just minutes, not hours or days to do. You can get signed up and running with most services in just a few minutes. And uh, even if you have an existing, uh, a legacy set of data that you want to migrate to a, a web-based practice management system like Clio, there's migration tools and migration services that we're able to offer to ease that process. So most firms can be up and running to the cloud in less than in the cloud in less than five minutes and can have their data imported uh, in a matter of hours or days. We've been talking to Jack Newton, president of Clio. Thank you so much, Jack. Thank you. And if you'd like to get more information on Clio, feel free to visit www.goclio.com. That's G-O-C-L-I-O.com. Someone's at the door. Don't answer it. Why not? I'm listening to Legal Talk Network podcasts to get my CLE credit in West Legal Ed Center. Oh, I need to do that too. Where do I find them? It's easy. Just go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and pick a program for CLE, click on it, and start listening. Or go to WestLegalEdCenter.com and choose from any of the Legal Talk Network programs available for CLE. Perfect. I'll do that right now. Tired of all the headaches of running your law firm? Want to spend your time doing what really matters? Then you need PC Law. PC Law from LexisNexis is the legal industry's best-selling matter, billing, and accounting software. It has never been easier to manage your law firm and serve your clients. Get back to doing what matters to you. For a free trial, go to PCLaw.com slash radio. That's PCLaw.com slash radio. Or call us at 800-685-2161 today. Promote yourself online with Legal Talk Network by becoming a featured lawyer. Your featured lawyer profile lets potential clients and referral attorneys get to know you in a five-minute podcast interview with Legal Talk Network, plus your photo, your bio, and your firm's contact info. Be part of the most progressive online legal network anywhere. Just call Legal Talk Network at 781-551-9960. That's 781-551-9960. Or by emailing admin at legaltalknetwork.com. Be a Legal Talk Network featured lawyer now. Protect your firm's email with AppRiver. Send confidential emails with confidence using AppRiver's CypherPost Pro email encryption service. With CypherPost Pro, you'll control who sees your messages, and a patented delivery slip will show you when they're received and opened. There's no hardware or software to manage. You can cancel any time, and you get a 30-day free trial. All backed by AppRiver's phenomenal care. Visit AppRiver.com, that's A-P-P-River.com, or call 866-223-4645. We're glad you're listening to Legal Talk Network. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn, too. You can advertise with us at Legal Talk Network and have your own commercial play in this podcast. Just give us a call anytime at 781-551-9960 or shoot us an email at admin at legaltalknetwork.com. Welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. We are talking with Kenneth L. Manning, a professor of political science at the University of Massachusetts at Dartmouth, and with Professor Carl Tobias from the University of Richmond School of Law. Uh, and, and Ken, I wanted to touch uh, on the study that you did, uh, statistical analysis of the decision-making behavior of federal judges appointed by uh, President Barack Obama. Can, can you tell us about that, what you found? Yeah, let me say first that a, a colleague of mine, Robert Karp, the University of Houston, um, and I have 
basically developed this big data set that you referenced at the beginning of the show, um, a little over 100,000 cases. And what we do is is do a statistical analysis of these decisions, and, and in the case of the, the recent research, compare it to previous presidents. Uh, we looked at, um, well, a published study had 91 cases. I've actually since since that came out, updated the study, and, and we have um, about 187 in our most recent sample of decisions published uh, by uh, Obama jurists, and then we compare that to decisions by previous presidents. What we found was that Obama's judges uh, handed down decisions overall at a liberalism rate of 48%, which compared to previous uh, presidential appointees is fairly typical for Democrats, not quite as liberal as, um, as uh, say, Johnson or Carter judges. They're really comparable, I should say, to Johnson and Carter judges, uh, a little more liberal than Clinton judges, um, not off the charts one way or the other, certainly more liberal than the, the judges appointed by W. Bush uh, and Bush before him and then Reagan. Uh, so, so Obama is on pace to, uh, it looks to be on pace to be uh, filling the, the judiciary with you know, mainstream liberal judges. Let's talk about the Supreme Court. Uh, obviously, we have um, some instances that are that may be coming up. Um, Professor Manning, what, do you, what is your take on uh, Obama's influence on the presidency so far, and, and what opportunity is going to exist in the next term? Well, uh, he obviously was able to um, score two pretty early uh, judicial v- uh, vacancies at the Supreme Court level, filled them with reliable, by all indications, reliable liberals uh, who are you know, eminently qualified, uh, non-controversial nominees. I think that uh, a lot of people going forward uh, will be looking at Justice uh, Ginsburg and to, to see if she decides to continue on. Um, she's been a reliable liberal vote, of course, and if she's going to retire a second term uh, during Obama, Obama, second term would seem to be a good time for that. Of course, that wouldn't really shift the ideological direction of the court. What what many liberals obviously would be hoping for would be some type of, of um, change uh, among the conservative jurists on the right. Um, I think the two prime candidates there, you would say, would be potentially uh, Justice Scalia um, uh, and potentially Justice Kennedy because of age, but but both of them seem to be in very good health um, given their age, and um, I, I've seen no indication that they would uh, would want to leave and hand their seat to the liberal, uh, uh, you know, hand their seat potentially to the liberal bloc on the court. So logic would potentially suggest that, but I don't think that that's likely. Professor Tobias, your take on that? No, I I agree with that. I think that all makes sense. There are you know a number of justices now who are in their seventies, and I think Scalia and uh, Kennedy would be eighty in twenty sixteen, and uh, Breyer's not far behind them. And so there's certainly a possibility in the next four years that we would see some vacancies. Um, but Ken's exactly right about whether the balance would shift. And, and there's there is research to indicate that ju- that judges are quite strategic when it comes to uh, announcing their retirement and allowing their vacancy to be filled by the incumbent president. Um, you know everything we know about Justice Scalia suggests that he would not want to do that, and probably with with Justice Kennedy as well. Um, uh, Professor Tobias just mentioned uh, 
um, uh, Justice Stephen Breyer, and that's an interesting name to talk about here because he's he's not, uh, to the best of our knowledge, really had any notable health issues, but he is in, in increasing age. And again, thinking strategically, if he wanted to leave that seat in the hands uh, of the Democrats, of course, he was appointed by Bill Clinton, um, then the second Obama term might be a, an opportune time for him to step down. Um, again, this is all rank speculation, but um, but you know you could potentially envision a, a Ginsburg and Breyer retirements over the next four years, which would enable the Democrats or the liberals and hence Democrats to really solidify their vote on the court. Um, you would have at that point four relatively young. Uh, liberal votes and um, and and no impending retirements from uh, from the liberal bloc uh, that could be handed to the to the Republicans should they win in 2016. Uh, Carl Thomas, I want to ask you, you you've you've written a lot about uh, the need to uh, uh, fill these vacancies. You you've editorialized recently about the need for the Republican Party to to uh, Cooperate in, in seeking to fill these vacancies, and, and with with the election just uh, just a matter of weeks away, from from the point of view of filling these vacancies, does it does it matter how we vote? <laughs> does does going does voting Republican or voting Democrat uh, hold out the promise of of uh, you know greater speed or or a greater likelihood that we'll be able to move forward on filling these vacancies? I don't know. I mean, I think that. Um the political scientists on on this call probably better than I can speculate on that, but I do think um, that partisanship um, has uh, become worse uh, of late, and especially in the Senate, uh, there isn't much by way of middle ground, and it's unfortunate that um, the gridlock that has infected the appeals and Supreme Court nominations now has moved to the district court level because those are the real workhorses of the federal judiciary. And it's just unfortunate that we've come to this impasse. Um, And I just wish the senators would have more respect for a co-equal branch of government um, and not... Can I interrupt you there, but it's a interesting observation that you're making, and it really raises the question of whether or not uh, the existence of, ju- of judicial vacancies is really within the Constitution. I mean, from the standpoint of, obviously, yes, they have vacancies, but what obligation under the Constitution exists for the Senate and the executive branch to keep the other branch going? Or does this is there just none? Could they simply allow the, the judiciary to come to a screeching halt because they refuse to do these uh, these well, vacancies? Well, they, they could and they, and they couldn't. Um, there's nothing to prohibit uh, complete and total intransigence in the Constitution, save for um, uh, nominees while the Senate is not in session, which would enable the president to uh, temporarily fill a vacancy. But, of course, with a lifetime position, you want to get someone in there who's, who's going to be there for the long haul. Um, but, but let's step back a moment, and, and I'll, I'll get a little, you know, pol- get a little political uh, theory going here. In, in Federalist uh, 51, James Madison talked about competition between the branches of government. He has his famous quote, and he says, ambition must be made to counteract ambition. And he talks about the, the executive and legislative branches being in, in somewhat competition with one another. 
And, and I think that could be potentially applicable here, but frankly, Obama hasn't done it yet. Obama has not made Republicans pay a political price for their intransigence. Uh, Republicans have really shattered all records on the use of the filibuster, on delay tactics, and, and this is in the legislative arena, and then also in, in filling judicial vacancies. And, and effectively, he's acquiesced to that, and he has not tried to make Republicans pay a real political price for it. And, and until he think he does that, until he becomes ambitious enough to counteract that ambition, I, I don't see why Republicans would change their game plan, because frankly, it's working. Obama's on pace at this point, as we noted before, to, to appoint a relatively low number of judges. Their, their foot dragging and, and stonewalling is frankly working, and I don't see them paying a significant political price for it. Until Obama and Democrats are willing to make Republicans pay a political price – why would Republicans change their strategy? So, uh, you know, people who follow the courts, scholars like us, uh, uh, reporters, et cetera, kind of do this hand-wringing about, oh, the, the system is so broken and so awful. And, and I agree with all that. But until there is some type of political force here to make a change, I don't see anything uh, uh, shifting. I see it potentially getting worse. Uh, Professor Tobias talked about it now trickling down to the district court level. I think that's exactly right. Why would Republicans do anything different if what they're doing right now is working from their perspective and they don't pay a political price for it? Certainly a concern and certainly a concern that uh, maybe the judiciary gets some ambition here and wonders how that would actually work. We've got about two minutes left in our in our program and it's time for us to wrap up and get your final thoughts. So let's turn to Professor Tobias first and uh, get your final thoughts as well as your contact information for our listeners, please. Well, I think I would just agree with what Ken said, and it's just unfortunate. I think Obama has uh, tried to be bipartisan in um, his consultation aggressively with uh, Republican senators and um, to bring forth only qualified nominees as rated by the ABA. Um, And he hasn't used the political leverage that he has, and uh, that may be advisable at some point. Um, I think the Republicans see this as unilateral disarmament, which they're not going to do. Um, And so until the issue is joined or forced, I think very little will happen. So that's too bad for the third branch. I don't think judges can do much about it. Uh, They can jawbone, but there are limitations on that. And so uh, we'll see what happens. Uh, I'm optimistic if Obama were to have a second term that he might do more uh, in a number of on a, in a number of ways that we've talked about more nominations, uh, be more forceful about pushing people. Um, I'm my my contact information is on the website at the University of Richmond Law School, and I'm happy to talk to anybody who's interested in this issue. Great. Well, thank you very much, and Professor Manning. Well, I think that there clearly is a problem, a, a deep seated and well recognized problem with judicial nominations and. Um, and the whole process of getting judges onto the bench in the United States, and this problem is getting worse. Uh, President Obama, the, the data indicated, is appointing mainstream liberals to the bench. His, his judges are not extremists. Uh, his judges are reliable liberals, just as, as the Republican presidents before him appointed reliable conservatives. But that said, we clearly, I think, need to see more action by the administration getting names before the Senate. And I think the administration, if it wants to have judges move through the Senate, is going to have to put increased political pressure 
on Republicans to move his judges. If, if that doesn't happen, I don't see this process changing. Right now, the Senate has become the, 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 the killing fields of legislation, and, and it's the killing fields increasingly of judicial vacancies and nominations. And, and until there, some larger political dynamic comes along to change that, and I frankly don't see it on the horizon, I only see this problem getting worse. As for my contact information, you can Google me. Uh, I am Professor Kenneth L. Manning at the University of Massachusetts at Dartmouth. Uh, you can find my webpage that way, or you can send me an email at kmanning, that's K-M-A-N-N-I-N-G, at umassd.edu. Great. Well, thank you both very much for being on the show this morning. Very much appreciate your thoughts. Bob, anything you want to throw in here at the last minute? Uh, no, you know, I think the only thing I, I want to note, I, the, it, it's important to point out that this matter of uh, judicial backlog, I mean, the ultimate you know, victims of this are, are, are the people who come into the courts uh, looking for justice uh, and looking for, for their day in court. And uh, um, it, it's, it's a shame that uh, our, our courts have to look at, uh, focus on sort of churning out cases as quickly as they can and moving backlogs as quickly as they can uh, whether than, rather than uh, uh, focusing on justice and providing justice. And that's really what they're supposed to be all about. Right. And it's a, it's a tremendous shame as well. I think that the news media has not really given much attention to the judicial backlog during this election and forced the candidates to address the issue. It would be nice to hear that uh, in the campaign news before the election uh, this fall. Yeah. We want to remind our listeners that they can now get CLE credit through West Legal Ed Center for listening to Select Legal Talk Network podcasts. Go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and click on West Legal Ed Center. You can also find all of our Legal Talk Network shows on iTunes. We want to re- uh, thank our guests for being present with us today. And we'll be back again next week with another great legal topic. When you want legal, think lawyer to lawyer. We'll see you then. See you then. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. Every week, a new legal topic that you won't want to miss. We hope you'll listen again and check out our other shows on the Legal Talk Network. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Somm. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.